Turn with me to uh, John 1, again, we'll be in verse 35. We're going to be looking at 35 um, to verse 51 as well tonight. Um, So let's go ahead and read now from God's holy word, which has been given to us in love. John 1, beginning in verse 35, says this, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, Wait, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the reading of God's holy word, forever faithful and true. Again, given to us in love. Let's go ahead and pray as we come back to the preaching of God's word. Jesus, as we have prepared our hearts now to receive your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be in our midst as he already is, applying the truth of the gospel to us. We ask, O Lord, that we would have ears that are ready to hear eyes that are open to see, and hearts that are wide before you to receive your truth. Lord, we so desperately need it. We thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. I pray, O Lord, that as I preach your word this evening, that um, you would use this time to spur us onward and upward so that we might see the Son of Man in all of his glory. King Jesus himself. So we pray this in his holy name. Amen. Well, nearly three years ago, I ended up doing the unfathomable thing. You wound up what? I wound up, I wound up doing the unfathomable thing. I deleted my Facebook account. <laughs> and it felt so good. <laughs> Not gonna lie. <laughs> it was amazing. Amen. And guess what? Amen. Hey, there we go. Yeah. Amen. Amen. There we go. <laughs> there we go. I got... <laughs> It was so freeing, to say the least, as the power goes off. Uh, it was so freeing, to say the least. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie, I have not missed it one bit 
been three years now. It's almost like eight or something. It's been three years now without Facebook. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> my name is this. And, no. um, but I have not missed it one bit, like, truly. Uh, see, back in 2007, when I first got Facebook, you know, back when it was like just the college students, you could actually have it back in 2007, the idea of being connected with my friends at all times was kind of actually appealing. Um, I know, you know, being more extroverted for me, it was for some introverts here in the room. It might not be as appealing as it would be for us, but, <laughs> but there was a huge appeal to being readily available and able to help and listen to my friends at any given time and vice versa, of course. But the more that Facebook as a platform got more and more and more overloaded with sensationalized gossip left and right and how they just politicized pretty much everything under the sun, <laughs> the more and more I desired genuine relationships over anything that social media could ever provide. I didn't want to be tethered to it. And so leaving the milieu of comparisonism and algorithmically orchestrated indoctrination, finally, three years ago, let me rediscover the art of pursuing and enjoying deep, meaningful, actual friendships again. It was beautiful. I can't say enough about how important it was for me to leave it personally. See, the holy desire, though, I know, as he's waving, waving your phone. The black mirror. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Narcissists, right? Now, the holy desire, of course, for, though, for relationships is good. I mean, it's a holy desire. It's from God himself. It's a good thing, of course. But I realized in time, especially after 15 years of trying to use something that was very much like a drug for me, that I couldn't find real, genuine relationships without losing the facade that was social media. Now, this is not a sermon, don't worry, about social media and how we all need to quit. That's not what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> Rather, that there are good things that we desire that are often not fully seen. See, here in the passage that we just read, the disciples desired a holy thing as well. They desired to see and know genuinely the Messiah that the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, the scriptures there, had foretold. As we saw last week, Jesus had just been revealed publicly for the first time during his priestly ministry, the very beginning of it, right there in his baptism, right there earlier on in our passage. And he was revealed to Israel by none other than, none other than John the baptizer. And here in ver, uh, verse 35 and following, though, we now see Andrew and Philip, the first two of Jesus' disciples, begin to discover the divine majesty of Jesus. And as they came to see and to know his glory, they couldn't help but pull in their closest companions. They started pulling in each other, Andrew pulling in Peter, and then more and more, I'm sure, as time went on, implicitly later on in the gospel. But the main point of our passage for us then is this, and this is in your bulletin as well, along with a little outline for you guys as well. But the main point that I want us to get and drive home into our own hearts is this. See, as we discover the riches of Christ, we must, that we get to, but we must invite others to come and to see Jesus too. It is our duty, but it's also our joy. Now, the past few weeks, John the Baptizer, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, has been a primary figure in each one of our passages. From the very beginning, in the first 14 or 18 verses or so, even last week as well, and again, even today, he's even mentioned here again. He'll be mentioned again later on as well. 
However, here we see the gospel narrative begin to shift its focus away from John's ministry of a baptism of repentance. And it holistically shifts away from John over now, thankfully, to Jesus, the one whom John was pointing to and pointing others to the entire time. And it, we begin to see now Jesus as the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king that he is, and that he was foretold to be all the way back in the Old Testament. See, last week we saw Jesus and specifically his priestly ministry, revealed in his baptism by water. And this was a fulfillment of the priestly ordinances of the Old Covenant, as you read about last week, places like Leviticus and elsewhere where it talks about this. And here we see Jesus, in our passage this evening, reveal his kingly reign in two key expressions. And these will be our two main points for this, or our two points, rather, for this evening. First, Jesus revealed his kingly reign by his divine authority that he exercised in verses 35 through 42, and second, by his divine providence that we see in verses 43 through 51. So again, we're gonna see Jesus as king and him exercising his kingly reign in his authority and his providence. And if you recall from last week, John, uh, the baptizer specifically, proclaimed that his purpose was very specific. It was singular, it was single-minded, and it was this. It was that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. You know, if he had a curriculum V-Day, like a resume, and had a purpose statement, I am here to do this, his CV, his curriculum V-Day, would say, I am here to reveal the Messiah to Israel. That was why he was born. That was why he existed. And we see this revelation of Christ take place over the course of not just one day, but three days even in our passage. Uh, day two was actually last week. The first day was actually a couple weeks ago when we were reading that passage. This is actually the third day now that John is testifying about Jesus publicly and that Jesus now comes onto the scene. That's why he uses that word again, again. See, on the first day, that was a little strange, huh? <laughs> um, on the first day, he told the priests and Levites that Christ was coming. That was the first passage where John comes onto the scene. And the second day, we see Jesus come forward for baptism, and then John declared publicly, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And now for the third day in a row, we see, starting in verse 35, that John saw Jesus again, and he declared for a second time now, on the third day now, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, if you didn't catch it the first time, here he is again. Here's Jesus again. Look at him. Follow him. Now, two of John's disciples were nearby, and our text says that they followed Jesus. Uh, they actually did what John was telling them to do. Hey, follow him when he comes. There he is. Go follow him. So they actually did. But I love how there's a lot of character here in this passage. And it just, it's just, it exudes throughout the entirety of this entire passage here. In verse 38, it says this, Jesus turned and saw, probably behind him, right? But he turned and saw them, meaning Andrew and Peter, following him and said to them, what are you seeking? <laughs> As if he didn't know that they were behind him in the first place and that he was irresistibly drawing them to himself. 
But what were Andrew and Peter doing? Well, they were seeking Jesus. Now, the other day, uh, Matt and I got together to go through the worship service, and we talked about, you know, different songs that would be good, and, you know, how we kind of build upon these different elements of Scripture and whatnot, and these passages together. And as we were getting together, we were talking about the Scripture itself and what you were learning from it. And Matt shared with me just how much that word seeking there in this first part of our passage had stood out to you. The word seeking, they were seeking Jesus. And I believe it really is the key word to our text to understand this. It's hardly the last time we will see this idea of seeking, whether it be Jesus seeking out people or people seeking Jesus. We're going to see it all throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. But here we see it, I believe, for the first time, here very explicitly. And we're going to see it again later on in John chapter 4, where Jesus made it abundantly clear as he called the woman at the well and entirely, uh, rather, and the entire town of Samaria to come to himself, to taste and see that he is good. When he says that the hour is coming, in John 4, he says this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of, uh, will worship the Spirit, or sorry, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, we have a seeking Father and we have a seeking Savior. But here in John chapter 1 still, Jesus points out that the two disciples, Andrew and Peter, were the ones in this specific narrative who were actually seeking after him. Now the Bible is full of humor. And a lot of times, for a lot of us who grew up in the church, which is probably almost all of us here, you know, we often come and we kind of sit through a sermon and it seems kind of boring, perhaps, and you know, then we do the right thing and say the right things, all the different pleasantries, and then we go back and we think, okay, that was nice and I felt a little good, but it was kind of boring, you know? And that's pretty common in a lot of American churches. But the Bible is chock full of humor. And I believe there's a ton of humor, especially in tonight's passage. See, for instance, the day itself was coming to a close. John, the gospel writer, mentions that it was the 10th hour of the day, meaning 4 p.m. Uh, think of our modern American system, you know, think rush hour, right? It's the end of the day, we're all going home from work. That's basically what Jesus was doing right here. You know, he was out there, he was being revealed to the masses, and then he's basically going home for the evening, and it's the 10th hour of the day. And there are these two disciples kind of dawdling, you know, after him, uh, hey, can we come with you, George? You know, can we go with you? And it's this funny picture, it's almost like Looney Tunes, like, like, here are these two guys just, like, following Jesus. Like, what is going on? It's a funny picture when you actually begin to paint it in your mind's eye. It's almost like Andrew and Peter are tagging behind Jesus, and they were doing this literally, and saying, um, uh, where, where are you going? Where are you going? Can, can we go with you? Can we stay with you? <laughs> That's basically what's going on right here. They flat out ask him, can we stay with you? Now, in my mind, I can picture them you know, thinking back in my own life, like the awkward kids in grade school who would kind of tag alongside you, you know, they're like, they're like looking up to you and they're like, like, oh, oh, you're still here. Like, why are you following me? Like, why, why are you around me? Because right? they're introverts. Oh. What did you say? Because <laughs> they're introverts. <laughs> they're like, we just want to be around you. But they're not saying anything. They're just there, you know? <laughs> but that's basically what's going on right here with Jesus and the two disciples. Maybe they were introverted. Who knows, you know? But they were following after Jesus. And they just ask this question, like, like, can we go with you? And, and Jesus is like, what are you seeking? Almost like, hey, uh, 
what are you looking at? You know, like, what are you, are you looking, looking at, at me? Are you looking at me? <laughs> what are you looking at? But he says, what are you seeking? And again, that word is so important for us. What are you seeking? What are you searching for? But I love this because Jesus doesn't just ask questions without purpose or without reason. He was drawing their hearts out. He was actually bringing what was going on in their heart to the surface. So it actually came to the surface of the exact seeking after him and following him at a distance even. See, God never asks us those kind of questions without purpose himself. Think back to the Garden of Eden, right? See, just as the Lord had done so with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where he called Adam and Eve out of their fumbling, out of their shame, out of their hiding into purposeful fellowship with him, Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, is doing this with Peter and Andrew right here in our same passage. He's basically saying, come out of your hiding. Tell me what's going on. Come be with me. Come stay with me. Come dine with me this evening for supper. A little trivia for you, by the way, but 6 p.m. was the end of the night. It was actually technically the beginning of the next day for the Jews. And so the day was coming to a close. There were two days left, or two hours rather left in the day before the evening came and dinner was served and all that kind of stuff. And so they were basically going home and Jesus like, come, actually, why don't you eat with me? Like, come stay with me a while, right? Friends, this is beautiful because this is our God. He's a seeking God. He's a God who actually invites us to come and dine with him, to actually eat with him, to share a meal with him, to sit down with him and stay a while. And Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he is the bread of life. He knows that he is the man sent from heaven. He knows that we are made to taste and see that he is good. And so in spite of Andrew and Peter's just derpiness, if you will, and like tagging along and approaching Jesus, notice that Jesus doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, you're too strange or you're too awkward for me. You're not good enough for me. No, he actually invites people like Andrew and Peter and even us to come to stay with him and to learn from him and to be his disciples, to be his followers. There's a beautiful irony here because if you think earlier on in John chapter one, we see that Jesus as the word of God is described as the dwelling place of God with man, right? He is himself a capital D dwelling place of God. Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate word of God, who tabernacled amongst us. In other words, didn't turn any, he didn't turn either of the disciples away. And we know in his word, he doesn't turn away anyone who desires to follow him. See, the capital T, tabernacle, or temple even, of God, took in two men who were seeking to worship Jesus for who he was. This is our God. He opens up the front door to us. He invites us in. This is the Christ. And he lets us see himself for who he is. And so Jesus exercised his divine authority over them in not just calling them, though, to be with him and to stay with him, but he ended up actually exercising his kingly authority over them by renaming Simon Cephas, or Peter in the Greek, Cephas being the Aramaic, Peter being the Greek, of that same word meaning rock. Yeah. 
rock. Friends, Jesus is still in the same business of calling men and women of every single background, every single ethnicity and culture, and all kinds of backgrounds and personalities alike to himself. He is himself, again, the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Jesus will never thirst. As he said of himself in John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's a whole separate sermon in and of itself. We'll get around to that later when we come to John 6. But in other words, Jesus is saying, I can in no way cast him out. I can in no way cast him out. Because God the Father gave them to me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are those people whom the Father has given to Christ. Do you know that about yourself? You're treasured, you're loved, you're adored. You're the apple of God's eye, as he calls you in the Old Testament. Meaning that when he looks at you right in the eyes, even as we look at him, we see our own reflection like a mirror in his pupils back at us. We see us when we look at him. He just is intently looking at you and he desires you. He desires to be known by you. And he wants you to know him. Continuing John 6, Jesus said this, again, all that the Father, meaning every single one who's been chosen in Christ before the world's foundation, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he continues on, he says this, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, meaning the desire, the heart desire of the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See the divine authority of Jesus over you. See, everyone whom the Father brings to Jesus, Jesus delivers not one person who believes upon Jesus will ever be put to shame by him or by God. No matter the sin that haunts you or the doubts that might steal your affections for Jesus, even this past week, Jesus will not let you go. He cannot let you go. See, so you see Jesus in all of his divine authority. Do you see his powerful safeguard over you and over your life? Well, our text now moves us to see this not just sovereign, but now very personal treatment toward us through his divine providence, his care for us. And we see his care for us laid out in the last half of our passage in verses 43 through 51. Now, believe it or not, Again, I mentioned how this passage is full of, of humor. It's mostly here in this part, <laughs> the last half. Christ's personal conversation here is just exploding with sarcasm and wit. And I love it. 
See, as, as Jesus traveled from Bethany to Galilee, which is old school northern Israel at the time, he came to Philip and he said the two words, follow me. Now, Philip knew that this was Jesus, and so he shared with his companion, Nathaniel, probably one of his best friends, hey, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I love this interaction here. Nathaniel, probably he was probably one of the more sarcastic ones of the bunch of the disciples, and just like a true northerner, retorted, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Basically, uh, who the heck is this guy? Nothing good comes out of that part of Israel. I love, though, how Philip is just like, hey, come and see. There's our phrase again, right? Hey, come and see. And so I love this, though. The sarcasm and the wit doesn't just stop there. See, when Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, he then said, and this is super sarcastic, by the way. He goes, ah, look, behold, an Israelite indeed, a man in whom there is no deceit. <laughs> I love it. You know, here, Nathaniel is probably like the most sarcastic one. He's like making fun of Jesus before he even met him. And then Jesus just like, whoop, like flips the script back on him. <laughs> No surprise that Jesus just dished out sarcasm back at him. Nathaniel was probably like, wait, how do you know me? <laughs> like, how do you even know me, man? And Jesus then responded, and again, this is all sarcastic. This is just like good humor. Jesus goes, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In other words, hey, like I saw you snacking on those figs over there and, and sleeping probably during the day when you should have been working, but I saw you. <laughs> See, Jesus, I mean, he's the author of humor, of course. He's a funny guy. And I mean no disrespect, disrespect in that. He, there's humor all throughout it. So then the, it continues on, though. Nathaniel then responds to him, well, Rabbi, meaning teacher, you are the son of God. I mean, you saw me doing that? Like, you knew my heart, and then you responded to my heart exactly the way that it needed to be responded to? Like, you must be the son of God. You must truly be God. You are the king of Israel. And to this, Jesus basically replied, oh, you haven't seen anything yet. So you came to that conclusion just because I saw you under the fig tree? Man, you haven't seen anything yet. Or in the ESP it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, you're going to see me glorified. And it's going to rock your if you think fig trees are amazing, just wait till you see the tree I'm about to go to three years from now. In other words, if you, Jesus to Nathaniel here, if you gave glory to me just because you saw that I know all things, just wait until you see me rend those skies apart and depart from here in power and in glory after I'm resurrected from the dead. See, for all the sarcasm, for all the humor and the wit, even the puns that are going on here in our passage, we see Jesus truly as the king who genuinely loves his people. He's not just a, okay, well, I brought you into my family. I don't really care for you, that kind of thing. No, this isn't our God. God actually enjoys you. He actually loves you. Do you know him to enjoy you? Do you know him to actually humor you a little while? Do you actually know him 
who loves your heart and who has actually made you, even your personality and your humor and your sarcasm, whatever it might be that defines you, you and your personality, Jesus actually made you that way. <laughs> he enjoys you. See, Christ the Lord, who, as we sang earlier from Psalm 46, is fierce and great, who, who speaks and all the earth just bows who looks intently and the mountains are scared and they, they melt before him. They're even cast into the heart of the sea. He, the same Jesus, yet looks upon you, beloved child of God, and he sees you with eyes of compassion and love. And not just a, oh, I guess they're mine, but rather, no, they are mine. I'm so glad they're mine. That's how Jesus looks at you. And we see this, I think, even implicitly from this text, where Jesus just simply enjoyed pounding around with Nathaniel. See, Jesus enjoyed making himself known to, this, to the disciples in their own unique ways. He even appealed to their own different and distinct personalities. See, Andrew and Peter, the two who were kind of fumbling around behind him, he invited them to say, hey, don't stay away from me. Actually, come in and dine with me. Yeah, I, I can tell you want to be with me. Why don't you come in? I actually want to be with you too. To Andrew specifically, who was probably the more social one, he sovereignly placed Andrew, and he placed it within his heart to go after his brother Peter and to actually invite Peter then to come and see Jesus the Messiah. Andrew's like, I gotta get like people that I care about. Like, I want to get my brother Peter. I want I want to pull him in on this too. And so Jesus appealed to Andrew by pulling him in. Uh, to Peter, who was the strong-willed one, and we know that especially through the rest of the Gospels, very stubborn, very strong-willed, he gave the new name to him, meaning rock. Peter, rock, to signify how he would use Peter to build up the floors of the kingdom of grace. When we think about Philip, for instance, how did Jesus interact with Philip? Philip, who was well-versed in the scriptures, as we know. This is him of whom we've been, him of whom we've been seeking. In other words, all my life I've been looking for the Messiah. Here he is. Philip, in other words, was well-versed in the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament very well. And so Jesus appealed to him. He proved to Philip that he was indeed the, the Messiah whom Moses and the prophets had all foretold. And to Nathaniel, again, the funny guy in the group, <laughs> Jesus used the art of sarcasm and humor, even, to break down his defenses and then to create a longing within his heart to anticipate the glorious triumphs of his grace and the crucifixion and resurrection yet to come. Now, looking around the room here then, how do we apply this, right, for us this evening? How does Jesus then look at us, right? Well, I'm firmly convinced of this, that each one of us here at Downtown Crows are indeed uniquely wired and truly special in God's eyes. And I'm not saying that in a, in a put-down at all. It actually is a genuine statement. You guys are very special, very unique. Again, God loves you, truly. And you're specially gifted. <clears throat> God has wired each one of us in so many unique ways. And he's given us gifts and talents and abilities that he wants to use to further his kingdom. And he will, and he already is even using these gifts and talents and abilities. 
But I want us to be reminded, even this evening from our passage, that we will never be a one-size-fits-all kind of church plant. We can't be. We can't be a one-size-fits-all kind of church because we're not cookie-cutter Christians. We're people who, again, are specially wired by God, and none of it is by by accident. It's actually all by his purpose and his special design. So between us, we, each one of us here, have widely varying backgrounds. We have different personal interests and stories and hurts and deeply held convictions. But the same Lord Jesus Christ has called each one of us to belong to him. We don't have separate Jesuses, obviously. We have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though we ourselves are many members of his body. And so this tapestry of his divine grace in choosing us, even us unique individuals, is not lost on me. And I'm sure it's not lost on you as well. See, while we should desire unity, like Ephesians 4 talks about, unity in the faith, our individual uniqueness and even our own peculiarities, even the ways that we're wired, are truly incredible assets to his kingdom as it advances here in downtown Lynchburg. Now, many of us here, for instance, even in our midst, are gatherers. That's how I'm built, much like Andrew or even Philip. Hey, come and be a part of this. Hey, come on, come on, be part of this. That's how I'm wired, personally. Uh, Some of you here, even myself included, uh, are a little strong-willed, right? And stubborn, like Peter. (laughs) I'll just leave it there. (laughs) Some of us are witty. We're funny. We're sarcastic. I'm looking at David over here. (laughs) Stay around him for about five minutes, and he'll make you crack up before you know it. But to each one of us here, whom Christ has made his own, he has and he will make his glory known to us for a purpose not all that unlike John the Baptizer's. He's going to give us the same purpose as John in many ways. Not to make known the Messiah to Israel, but rather to make known Christ the Messiah to our neighbors here in downtown Lynchburg. Again, one purpose, one God, one Father overall. Even though we ourselves are many. See, in Christ's divine providence, then, he has and he is and he will use each one of you here to join him on mission in seeking and saving the lost sheep of Israel. Even the lost sheep of Israel that are scattered here in downtown. Now, our evangelism will not look the same. For instance, Penny is different from David, who is different from Esther, who is different from Noel, who is different from Matt, who is different from me. We're all different in our own ways. But even though we are made to proclaim the same glory as Christ, our approach then and application to sharing the good news about salvation in Christ's name will not, and honestly it should not, be identical. Each one of us, as we share the gospel of grace with our neighbors, it's going to look a little different. That's a good thing. So are you ready and willing and even eager to be used by God, how God's designed you to advance his kingdom of grace here? using the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you as an individual. My exhortation then to each one of us tonight and in closing is then that we must not be discouraged. We must not be discouraged in our evangelism 
or think that only one or two of us here are actually called to evangelize. The truth is, is that all of us are actually called to share the good news of Jesus. We're called to do that in how God's wired each one of us uniquely. See, knowing Jesus and making Jesus known is all of our responsibility from God. And he's given it to us to do. But we will not, we will not desire to share the gospel unless we learn to first seek Jesus. We must first seek Jesus. So friends, do you desire him? Do you desire to know him? And do you, do you desire to make him known here to our neighbors in downtown? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are so good and gracious for us. And that you've given us this opportunity to learn from you, to sit with you, to be with you. And now to dine with you as we prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper as you've given to us in your word. Thank you, Jesus, so much that you have not left us without witness, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the one who leads us in all the truth, who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but who leads us to see you and to see you more fully. And so, Lord, our heart's desire is to see and to seek after Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that wherever there is something in us that is trying to keep us from seeking him, that it would be stripped away from us, that we would be broken down, and that you would softly heal us and bind us up by your grace to seek and follow hard after you once more. And so do this, O Lord, in our midst, for the glory of you, our King.